Take talk. Plan B. How are you, Rebecca? I'm all right, thank you, John. It's been a very slow news week, actually, in Cape Town. I don't know if you have experienced this. It may not no. seem like it, <laughs> no. but there's actually been very little going on. You know, yeah, Parliament's I'm, not sitting. Mm. But you, you did write about that judgment from Judge Siraj Desai yesterday on the garnishy orders, which I spoke yes. with Wendy Applebaum about, and it really is a wonderful judgment. It really is. It's so great. You know, just every now and then you get these court judgments that, you know, you can just see are going to make a real tangible difference in a lot of people's lives for the better. And this is definitely one of them. You know, just the the court has so unambiguously affirmed the idea that it is invalid and unlawful and, you know, also immoral to attach people's salaries automatically when they are in arrears. And, um, yeah, I think it, they've written off now the, the 15 applicants, their particular um, attachment orders. But I think there definitely will be consequences going forward for the the whole microlending in- industry, which really is a, a tawdry affair, isn't it, John? That whole industry. Yeah, I mean, um Wendy Applebaum was telling me yesterday that this particular firm of attorneys that was at the centre of this particular court case with these particular 15 emolument attachment orders, that they have, Jean, what was the figure? Something like four and a half billion oh, rand of purchase right. debt on their books. 150,000 cases. 150,000 people staggering. who are having, in some cases, their entire salary just vanishes. They, they, they never see that salary. It goes straight to the creditors. And, I mean, you may well argue that people shouldn't be getting in debt beyond their means, but... We all know it's not that straightforward. And they shouldn't be given credit as well. It's totally unscrupulous to give people credit when they can't repay it, like mm. Greece. <laughs> Same vibe. <laughs> so you see, there is a lot going on in the world of news. But seeing as how there's not a lot going on in the world of news, let's talk about some things outside the world of news. Let's yes. talk about people who are later versus people who are punctual. I am yes. habitually punctual. That doesn't surprise me, John. It's written all over you. <laughs> yeah. I also, imagine, all over me. I also imagine that you are irritated with people who are habitually late. Would that be correct? <sighs> Am I irritated with... I used to be. I'm not anymore. I'm much more... Okay, they're late. Um, do I have any emails to reply to? Is there a wonderful view I can fix my eyes on? I used to be up until <laughs> fairly recently. I used to be very, very, very cross. <laughs> there are... Two forms of lateness, as another article I read this week pointed out. One is okay lateness and one is not okay lateness. And the okay lateness is when, for instance, you're going to a party or a braai and things can go ahead without you and nobody is harmed from your tardiness. The not okay lateness is when you're meeting one person for dinner, for instance, and you're 40 minutes late. That is the not okay. But um, the point I was going to make was that I read an article which enraged me, actually, because it made several (laughs) confounding claims about people who are always late. And the main thrust of it was that late people are late because they are more optimistic than punctual people's. The idea is they always think they'll be able to fit more tasks into a small space of time than they actually can. But this article spun this in in an extremely positive way that, that late people are just optimistic, you know, they don't sweat the small stuff. And I say this as somebody who is late. I'm always late. I'm habitually late. No, you're not. I'm not for these kind of appointments, but socially, socially. And John, I will tell you why I'm always late. It is not because I am optimistic. It is because I am selfish and self-absorbed. That is why I'm late. And that is why everyone's late. It's because you care more about your own time than other people's. (laughs) I quite like the idea, though, that 
people who are habitually late are habitually late because they're more important things than arriving on time. And being a multitasker is one of those more important things. It, it does seem, though, that um, perennial lateness is actually almost hardwired into your brain because they point out that this kind of a person will be late for good things and bad things. There is no difference. I mean, even if you're positively anticipating something, they'll still be late for it. And sometimes I think it's because people don't know how time works. So you continuously think that a task, for instance, will take you shorter than it will, even though you have abundant evidence that, it, it, that in fact, it will take you longer. We are going quite hard <laughs> and deep on this topic. So, I'm, I, you see, I'm, if I'm invited, see, I get very cross with 6.30 for 7.00. I, I don't know what that means. Yeah. I, I really have no idea what 6.30 for 7 means. Mm. And, and I agonise over it far more than I mm. should. I want to be invited. John, come to dinner. Thank you very much. I'd love to come to dinner. What time? 7.30. At 25 past 7, I'm parked 200 metres down the road because I don't want them to see my car. I don't want them to go, oh, my goodness, John's outside and it's five minutes early. And then I sit there and then it gets to half past 7 and I go, mm, I think I'll... Mm, should I wait till somebody else comes? Maybe they parked in the driveway. Maybe they were invited for half past six. And then usually at about three minutes past the given time, I go in. I and if I've invited I... people for half past seven, Rebecca Davis, come to dinner with me. Please come at half past seven. At 7.30 and three seconds, I'm gazing out of the window. Where's Rebecca? I mean, you would, you would have a wait because I actually think it's rude to arrive at someone's in, at their dinner party, for instance, at the exact allotted time. I think you should give them a generous margin for last-minute frantic cooking and, and so forth. No, I would th say, they, they must build the margin into the time that they invite me. <laughs> I would say a, a decent hour to arrive if you're invited at 7.30 is 7.40 at the absolute earliest, 7.45 even. I didn't realise we were that fundamentally different. <laughs> Well, now we know, John. <laughs> okay. When you invite me over for dinner, finally, I will just subtract 15 minutes from the time I'd normally arrive. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll probably invite you for the day before <laughs> see what happens. Why are you f completely fascinated by the former Greek finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis, I mean, who, who, isn't who John resigned on Monday? What a badass. Did you see his... His, I mean, just his, his final actions, his movements, his words, I will wear the hatred of my creditors with pride. And then he gets onto his motorbike with his hot blonde wife and drives off into the sunset. I mean, what a, what a panty dropper. <laughs> <laughs> he really is. The Irish Senate apparently had a serious discussion because one of the senators raised with concern the fact that Varoufakis's wife wasn't wearing a... A, a helmet, helmet on, the, on the motorbike, but it would have destroyed the the aesthetics of it. But he really is a fascinating guy. Um, I read, for instance, that he was at the University of Essex in the 1980s and he became president of the Black Student Society, despite quite evidently not being black. Um, he felt that, you know, he was also a marginalized person and that he could lobby very hard on behalf of black students. And he was duly elected and went forth, which has elements of that Rachel Dolezal story, I must say. But none, none of this. Yeah, but the, 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 the significant difference is that he didn't pretend. He did to not. Be. He did not pretend. Um, and also the fact that it, until recently he was employed by a video game producer. Um, he was their in-house economist, and apparently a lot of video game producers have these. I had no idea. 
to explore the social economies of uh, video games. And he wrote a whole, a whole blog post explaining this. Um, I'm a fan, John. I'm a fan. <laughs> <laughs> For the second topic in a row, you failed to convince me of your point of view. <laughs> oh, dear, this is the end of a beautiful relationship. So let's move on to something else, shall we? Now, this is, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. So simple, mm. so effective in Botswana. Researchers have discovered that an extra year of schooling lowers your risk for acquiring HIV. I, so I, don't, I, I don't know why that mm. should be the case, but I just read those two mm. lines and I go, yeah, QED. Absolutely. It, it's the first causal evidence, even though it seems insane because, as you say, it's so intuitively reasonable. It's the first causal evidence that ed- education and reduced HIV infections are linked. And it's a study that's just been published in the prestigious Lancet Medical Journal, which looked at students a decade after they had left school and found that the students who had stayed on in school on average a year longer, their risk for contracting HIV was reduced by a third a decade later. I mean, a third is substantial. And it was in, an especially powerful causal relationship for for girls. I mean, so the obvious question is why? Yeah, even why? And they don't know. They don't know why. It's important to note that it's not like the education they're getting is sex education. It's not like they get that extra year and then someone teaches them about condoms and that's it. It's just education that causes this effect in general. So one theory is that obviously because you stayed in school a year longer, your job prospects are improved. And therefore, if you're a woman, you're less likely to be vulnerable to older men, for instance, which is one of the main drivers of the pandemic. And then the other, you know, just posited reason is just that staying in formal education longer improves your cognitive skills. So you can just make better decisions. You're more likely to have safe sex and to, you know, make decisions that respect yourself. Um, Sydney has emailed to say, please tell Rebecca she has the most amazing voice I've ever heard. Thank you, Sydney. How kind. Sydney's been listening to me for 17 years. I no longer <laughs> amaze him. New person comes in. Yes, her voice is all right. Um, hi, John. You know who I am, but for the purposes of this mail, I will be anonymous. If only your guest knew just how many of us can't wait for her slot on a Thursday and how we hang on her every word like love-struck teenagers. We do take her seriously, too. And then the other story that you sent me that I absolutely loved the, the American parents forcing their children to watch television as a punishment. That's right. Isn't it incredible, John? How times have changed. So because kids in America seemingly by a significant margin prefer to watch things on tablets, so they watch videos on their iPads, for instance, um, it is now increasingly common for the parents to punish them by taking away the tablets and making them watch television instead. <laughs> television is no longer the screen of choice for kids. They don't like it. And in fact, there's a, a noticeable decline in kids' TV channel channel um, ratings in the US. Um, they've done studies too when they offer kids in America the choice between dessert or time spent with an iPad. The majority will pick the the time with the iPad. Yeah, yeah, you probably go, why am I not, why am I taking the iPad? It's a cookie, but hey, I could always get a cookie another day, is what one of them said. <laughs> That's right. So, um, yeah, half the parents quizzed by the survey said that when their kids act up, they confiscate the tablets and they make them watch TV as a punishment. So there's also the suggestion that there's now this Pavlovian <laughs> negative response in kids to 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 television just as a thing. Also, and but it is extraordinary. I mean, I, I have 
to not so young children, 25 and, and 22, but also have a 19-year-old American girl living with us. And they almost never watch, you know, I've got this huge flat screen 3D, HD, whatever, whatever sound system, and they never watch it. They'll sit in the kitchen around a laptop mm. with crappy tinny sound. Mm. Because they couldn't be bothered to watch a movie. No. They're watching three-minute YouTube clips, you know. It's it's just the the way of engaging with material and the kind of material they want to engage with. It is truly uh, and almost academically fascinating to see how that's happened. And, you know, obviously media needs to keep up at the risk of being, you know, if television is seen as this antiquated medium, then it suggests you've got to adapt or die. The most perplexing part of this study though John I don't know if you noticed this at the end of the article was that over 30% of kids surveyed or parents surveyed about kids said that that they like to watch the same content on two platforms simultaneously on more than one platform so they'll be watching it on TV and then they want to watch it on the tablet at the same time I mean that's just bizarre isn't it it is it is there really can't be an explanation for that. Other than that, as the article finishes, kids are just weird. That's right. Just weird. Uh, Rebecca, I, I tried to persuade her that she's not allowed to go on holiday when I'm not on holiday. I do not want to have Thursday afternoons without Rebecca Davis, but we're facing three Thursday afternoons in a row without Rebecca Davis. But she has, from the kindness of mm. her rich mm. blue blood pulsing heart mm. of it to come in next Wednesday on the day before her holiday. Thank you very much for that. Thanks, John. Thank See you then. Bye-bye. You're with Cape Talk. Cape Talk. Your number one news and talk station. You can join the conversation. Quite a few commentaries on lateness and what's polite and what's not polite when it comes to uh, social engagements, particularly. I'll get to those in a while, but let's chat to Professor Graham Lowe, who's Professor of Anatomy at UCT's Human Biology Department. You want my body when I'm dead, do you, Graham? Uh, <laughs> uh, John, yes, we would. I guess they want mine and they want yours, eh? Hey? Uh, so I, I wondered out aloud a little earlier... I. I can choose between, well, I can choose to do nothing with my body or I can yeah. choose to become an organ donor or I can choose to donate my body to the medical school so sure. second-year anatomy students can carve me up and learn something about the human body. You right. can't do both. No, uh, John, the, the bodies that we accept are uh, need to be intact. So they're, they're, we can't have had a post-mortem done to them. Uh, ideally, all the organs should be intact. You know, obviously, if people have had operations during their lives, then there could have been some surgical interventions there and, and so on. Um, even, for example, amputees, we tend to be a little bit reluctant to accept them, although we can use them for specific workshops. So in general... Uh, one needs to make a decision, do I want to donate my organs or do I want to donate my body intact to medical school? Uh, my guess would be, Graham, that more people are donating organs than are donating bodies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the concept of donating your entire body for medical students and, and other health and re- rehabilitation students to dissect is probably a little uh, far down the line for most people to accept. But I must add that the University of Pretoria works through the Organ Donation Foundation to obtain their uh, their bodies, their, their body donors. So uh, when people contact the organ, organ donation uh, company, they are then asked, do you want to just 
donate some organs or do you want to donate your whole body? Here at UCT, we don't do that. We have our own um, campaign to get people to sign up. And I don't know how many people are going to be interested in signing up as a result of our conversation but for those who go well why not let me donate to my body yeah, sure. so I, I can't i can't do both i can't say if you want my i think my corneas are still pretty all right if you want my corneas you can have them and uct medical department you can have the rest that's not an option well corneas are fine because <clears throat> a cornea they just remove the outer portion of the eyeball and uh, the rest of the body is intact so there's no problem with that uh, but in fact, corneas are harvested quite regularly at uh, at some of the um, uh, mortuaries where they do post-mortems. So uh, we have a relatively small number of people donating their bodies here. So, you know, cornea, well, we can live with a cornea being removed, but the rest we want. Gen- generally, you want an, an intact body. Yeah. And and are there are there restrictions in terms of age perhaps if anything do you want anything you don't want anything that's over 60 70 80 no no the reality is that because there's only a small portion of the population who from a cultural perspective who are prepared to donate their bodies we in fact often end up with uh with mainly older people in the dissection hall and uh, we we recently i think 2 years ago we had two gentlemen who were both 101 uh, and because people are living longer, that tends to be more and more the case now. So, 80s, 90s, even early 100s. Okay. And are there any other restrictions? Uh, do you do you particularly want modest, not modest bodies? What's you know, I'm, I, I'm not particularly large or particularly small bodies, or doesn't that matter sure, either? Sure. The smallness wouldn't really matter. Um, the largeness does become an issue. Uh, we talk about body mass index, uh, which, which I'm sure you're familiar with, and that really relates to uh, a reflection of the obesity of the, of the person. So we, we do set an upper weight limit, and the reason for that is because the body has just become too heavy to handle, and also the dissection process becomes v- v- uh, uh, very, very slow because of all the excess fat that needs to be removed to discover the, the, the structures that need to be studied. And, all right, so if you, if you and I presume natural, uh, death by natural causes is, is going to make your body more, because if you die violently in a, in a motor car collision or as, you know, as a result of somebody coming into your house and hacking you to bits, yeah. then your body is not going to be of, of use in this situation. So somebody who, has, who, who thinks, why not? You know why not? Yeah. Uh, and I, I think the older one gets, the less, the less one's organs are likely to be of use in a transplant situation. Sure. So you know maybe you become an organ donor until you turn sixty-five, and then you change your mind and donate your body to UCT Medical School. Somebody right. who is interested, what do they do? So what, what they would do is they'd go to the UCT website and then uh, look for the various faculties. Uh, health sciences would be the choice. And then you go into our department, human biology, and you can pick up uh, a section that we've, where we've written about the body donation uh, program. And the forms to complete are actually available electronically there. You just click on the, on the, the link. And this can either be done electronically or through uh, the mail. And in that way, it's almost like a contract that's drawn up between us and the potential donor. 
Okay, thank you very much for that, and I hope that at least one person and perhaps more, I'm, yeah, why not? As somebody points out on the SMS line, donating your body is cheaper than a funeral. Thanks very much, Professor Graham Lowe, Professor of Anatomy at UCT's Human Biology Department. Uh, Paul von Deventer tweeted, interesting discussion on the video viewing habits of youth. What was the article that prompted the discussion? Uh, Paul, as soon as I get a second, I'll email that article to Stefan and I'll ask him to tweet a link to it. Ian Inotuk, hello. Hello. Uh, regarding the, uh, the bank repossessing cars. Yeah. I work to the bank, um, not on this thing, but I know how they think. If there's um, not, if the amount uh, owing on the vehicle is less than the bank can sell the vehicle for on auction, which they normally do, then they love to repossess the car and sell it as quickly as they possibly can, because they get more for the car than the balance uh, owing. Yeah. All right. They seldom re- uh, refund the client for any change because they add on all their legal costs, collection costs, uh, sheriff costs, and all the various things they can dream up. So the customer ends up, hope, thankfully for him, not owing anything, but losing his car and all the money he paid in. And if there's a huge amount owing on the car and the vehicle isn't worth as much, it may not be a popular vehicle, then the client can actually uh, very often negotiate with the bank and they squeeze the money out of him because they don't want to be able to lose out on the deal. That's the way they work, as far as I can remember. All right, those are interesting insights. Ian, thank you very much. Um, C says on the SMS line, I've donated my body to UCT. I couldn't afford varsity while I was alive, so I'm going when I'm dead. And V says, my mother donated her 83-year-old body to UCT. It was a smooth and easy process having them collect her. We found them respectful and sensitive. Uh, thank you very much. That might... Uh, that might answer a, a question that it, it's an answer to a question that people might have had in their heads. Um, my mother donated her body to UCT Medical School, says Claire. She wanted to ogle the medical students as a skeleton. Okay, And then some stuff on punctuation and timekeeping. Punctuation on meeting time is critical. Punctuality, I think you mean, on meeting time is critical. I came to Cape Town in 2008 and noticed that if I could turn up to my clients 15 minutes early, then I had every chance of making it into the local wallpaper market. Today we here run a very well-run business and have got to the stage of clients advertising for us. Okay, You 100% correct, John. That's the sort of SMS I like. 7.30 is 7.30. And when Farney sent this, he was a few minutes early for a meeting in Cape Town, waiting around the corner as any good person should. Farney Ekenye. Ek and yay. In Germany, one is allowed an academic quarter of an hour and then it's just rude to be late. I have one friend who is always perfectly on time. It drives me nuts, so I invite him adding 30 extra minutes. Kim says from Stellenbosch, I side with Rebecca on the dinner party thing. It's considerate to your host to give them extra time to prepare. No! No! That makes no sense at all. I'm having people round to dinner on Saturday night and I'm making Ferenadria's fish soup with saffron and pastis and I'm going to top that with some prawns which have been done in chili and butter and then I am serving lamb neck and then I've got a host of cheeses and then I'll do some dessert and I will plan my day so that at seven o'clock everything has been done so I can sit down and enjoy a pre-guest arrival glass of soda 
And then when they arrive, they've been invited for half past seven. I'm not sure what time they will arrive. When they arrive, I'm ready to receive them at the time that they for which they were invited. Uh, <laughs> but not everybody agrees. Lateness drives me crazy. Uh, <laughs> when is tennis semi-finals day and finals what day? Do people really not know that? It's ladies semi-finals and uh, we've got Muguruza up 5-3 in the final set against Radwanska and that's going to be followed by Serena Williams against Maria Sharapova. It's men's semi-finals day tomorrow. It's ladies finals day on Saturday and the men's final on Sunday. John Matham on Cape Talk. It's four o'clock. This is Eyewitness News. Liquor Authority takes Kailicha Tavern owner to task and Deputy President weighs in following a tax on judiciary. Good afternoon, I'm Leanne de Basson-Pierre. The Western Cape Liquor Authority is taking a Kailicha Tavern owner to task after a deadly stampede at his business. Officials believe they have enough evidence to prove the owner contravened the conditions of his liquor license and should be sanctioned. Eight people died after metal staircase trailing at O.C.'s place gave way late last month. Two of the victims died when the car transported.